true now also. You'll notice that uh, it talks about how the new heaven and the new earth are come in, verse 21, and the holy city comes down out of heaven from God. Now, the holy city is the bride of Christ. The holy city is the church. And here, it's not so much about people going up to heaven, if you like. It is more about the city coming down to earth. And whilst that's ultimately seen in the new heavens and the new earth, part of the picture, I think, that John is drawing us or that God is teaching us is, yes, the world is a mess. Yes, the church is full of sinners. But my bride, my church is beautiful and is being made beautiful. And that whole image of the bride of Christ as the city is one that's shot through the Scriptures uh, the Bible is really a tale of two cities, the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem, the city of God and the city of uh, the devil. And here we're being given a picture of the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, which is vastly different from what we might think. One of the things uh, that we so often have as Christians is, and I, I notice this more and more, and it's something sometimes personally you feel is this enormous sense of disillusionment with the church of Jesus Christ, where church leaders lie, where church leaders manipulate, where churches turn far, far away from the Scriptures, and yet here we're being told that the church of Jesus Christ is something that's beautiful and, and glorious. And that's important. It's important because people need to see. We, we saw this morning, we were talking about revealing Jesus Christ. Well, how is Christ to be revealed? Normally, He is revealed through His people. There's a fascinating article that I was sent today. I think it's from the Times yesterday. You can get it online. It's from a guy called Matthew Paris. Now, Matthew Paris is a well-known Times columnist. He is um, uh, homosexual. Um, he's a fairly strong activist. He's an atheist. He's a committed atheist, as he puts it. And he's written, in fact, I, I, I still consider this just breathtaking what he's written. It's remarkably honest. He says that Africa's greatest need is for more missionaries, not more money, and not more what he calls NGOs or not more uh, non-governmental organizations or not more government aid. He says, Africa's greatest need is for missionaries. And he goes on to say, not just because missionaries do good work in helping the poor, but he says, as an atheist, he says, I realize this doesn't make sense, but I have to say that they are needed because they transmit their faith. He says, as an atheist, I want to say, it's good that they do their work. It's just a shame they bring salvation along with it. But he says, I actually have to say that it's the salvation that comes with it that it benefits the Africans. And he said, I, I want to tell you. He says, there is a difference. And really, you need to get hold of this article because he talks about people who are working with a secular organization. He said, I knew they were Christians by the way they behaved. He said, I just knew they were Christians. I caught one doing his devotions. Another one went off to church for two hours. He said, I knew it. And instead of saying, these are Christians and it's terrible, he was saying it was wonderful what they'd been given. Now, you need to read that article to see. For me, I, I just thought of 
what Jesus says. Men will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I think we desperately need in this city for people to see the church of Jesus Christ as something extraordinarily beautiful, not something of which we are embarrassed and ashamed, in which we say, yeah, we follow Jesus, but we're not into church. This, in, in Revelation 21, talks to me of the church in, in its glory. Now, we'll see as it goes on. Now, of course, you've got to bear in mind that we're not in the situation where the old order of things has completely passed away, where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But we are in the situation where the city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, is on earth. And we hope and pray will increasingly be so. Let me say then, first of all, that what's notable about this city is it shines with the glory of God. Come, I will show you the bride, he says, the wife of the Lamb in verse 9. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The jasper, by the way, and again, like all of Revelation, you can take every verse from other parts of the Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, talks about the throne of heaven. It says, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Now, the thing about jasper is that it is something that's clear, but in it contains all the colors. It reflects all the colors. And here what we're being told is that the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the church of God, perfected in heaven, but here on earth, reflects the glory of God. Now, now, what is the glory of God? Glory is the ultimate essence and being of God. Glory is, as we've been doing at the evening things, the first question we looked at is, what is our chief purpose? It's to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. To show the glory of God is to show the worthiness of God, the godness of God, the holiness of God. That's why unholiness in worship, that's why anything which does not show the glory of God in, in anything of our lives is not worthy of God. In a sense, what's being told here, John is being told, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He's saying, isn't she wonderful? Isn't it magnificent how she shines with the glory of God? And John would have known, you are the bride. And so, you are to reflect the holiness and the glory of God. And that's an, and that's an extraordinary thing that uh, we are to have. The glory of God is a reflected glory. But it's something that we will have totally in heaven but we mustn't wait till heaven. It must be something that we want to see more and more now. There's a great verse in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 14, where it talks about the unbeliever coming in amongst you and saying, truly God is amongst you. You know, there's enough people who say, I don't believe in God because of that Christian or because of the way they behave in that church. But to have people come in and to say, there's something. There's something. Even though this doesn't make sense to me, even though this goes against what I believe, 
there's something here that makes me want to know God. And as uh, we think about the church of Jesus Christ, let's pray that in 2009, that the glory of God would shine in and through and from His church, that we would be like Jasper reflecting the different colors, as we'll see. Now, the picture that's then given of the city is, um, this is going to be the same story as in with the rest of Revelation. You don't, okay, okay, I'll I'll be more careful. Um, Most people don't seriously think that this is a physical description of heaven and how it actually is. You can tell that for a large extent because of the numbers which are tied in with different numbers throughout the Bible and so on. You kind of get too caught up in in details if you start thinking, well, heaven's going to be 1,500 miles wide and and it's going to have a a wall this high and we're all going to walk on streets of gold. That's not what this is teaching. It's taking imagery and teaching us what the church of Jesus Christ is like, what it will be like in the future, absolutely, but what we are aiming for uh, even now, what we're on our way to even now. So, for example, you've got the great high wall in verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. What did the great high wall do? It served two purposes. It keeps out evil. Chapter, one, verse, sorry, chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's a picture there that's... God wants heaven, and heaven is pure. He wants His church to be pure. That automatically means that any single human being cannot belong to that church unless we are cleansed, unless we are pure, unless we are forgiven. And again, that is the whole message of the Bible, that that is done through Jesus Christ. It keeps out evil, and it provides eternal security for those inside. The wall does that. That's the ancient city walls. The whole purpose was to keep out the enemy and to provide security. And again, that's absolutely 100% perfectly true for the believer in heaven. But I also want to say this. It's true for the church today. That there is a security. That there is a, a, a binding of evil. Whatever you bind on earth be bound in heaven. That there is a case, for example, the opposite side of that is when someone goes against the teaching of God, when someone turns away from Jesus Christ, we use, people use the phrase excommunicated, someone is disciplined. Lots of people hate that idea. But part of that idea is just simply this. It's what uh, Paul says, that he handed, Demas, having loved this world, has forsaken me. And he talks about having handed his body over to Satan, that his spirit may be saved. In other words, there's a security within the church. And what was happening there was that someone was removing themselves or being removed from that security. Now, I know, again, a lot of us as Christians, we struggle with this whole idea of the church as being a secure place. We think the church is a battleground. We think we're very suspicious and very cynical about the whole church. We've been wounded and hurt 
by the whole idea. And yet, I can't get rid of this, this, this image collectively of Christians, of God's people being the ones in whom, as the psalmist says, is all my delight. There's a security in the bonds of God's people. There's also strength, unity, and openness. That's what you have in verses uh, 12, 13, and 14, where you have the 12 gates, the 12 angels, the 12 foundations, and the 12 apostles. Now, without going into a great deal of detail, that's just simply talking about the two uh, expressions of the covenant or the unity of the covenants embracing all the peoples of God. There are the, uh, you have the 12 tribes of Israel, you have the 12 apostles, and all that is, is kind of being brought together. The gates, this is a, a mega city, it's a very large city. Normally a city would maybe have four gates, like in Dundee, obviously, the well gate, the nether gate, the market gate, and so on. But this city has 12 gates that they, are, they represent, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, and so on. They represent the apostolic foundations of the church. And there is a strength, there is a unity, and there's an openness in that. I want to particularly stress the apostolic foundations. One of the interesting things this past year for me is, has been speaking in different places and meeting people who keep talking about, we need to reinvent the church, and the church is, is finished, and we need a new church, and so on. Now, a lot of the people who argue like that are doing two things. First of all, they, they lack a, an understanding of history to such a degree that they don't realize that what they're doing is just something that was done a hundred years ago, it was done 200 years ago, it was done 500 years ago, it was done 1,000 years ago. It's nothing new. There is nothing new under the sun. And secondly, what they're doing is, they almost seem to be saying, you know, God got it wrong all these years, or if God didn't get it wrong, human beings got it wrong, and we are the people who are going to get it right. And there does seem to be an, an arrogance involved in that. I don't believe that we need to keep on reinventing the church. We are building on what has gone before. Yeah, sometimes it needs to be renewed, reinvigorated. Sometimes the dross needs to be cleared away. Sometimes we built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets things which are nonsensical and which are unbiblical and which are wrong, and that needs to be destroyed. But... What we are constantly seeking to do is not reinvent the church, but it's to re rebuild on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. And I think, again, that's something that, that should help us. The church is not just about this particular group or even the churches that exist throughout the world today or what we think will be in the future, but it is also about what has happened in the past. And sometimes I find it personally very reassuring and very encouraging to go and to, to read about the early church or the church at the time of the Reformation or um, the church in Scotland in the 19th century and so on, and to realize that there's lots of people who've gone before us, and we're not starting over, we're not reinventing, we're not reimagining the whole thing. And that's a wonderful for me, a wonderful thing to be able to have. There's a strength, there's a unity and an openness in the church of God.
And then verse 16, and forgive me for going through this fairly quickly, there's the square, the city square. Look at it. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it was long. Why is it square? What's important about that? Turn to 1 Kings. Go to the Old Testament, and there's a reference, I think, to this anyway. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 20. 1 Kings is obviously before 2 Kings and just after the Samuels. 1 Kings 6 and verse 20. This is about the building of the temple. I'll read from verse 19. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. Now, what's important about that? It's a square. It's a cube. What's being described? The inner sanctuary. What was the inner sanctuary for in the temple? It was the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the high priest could enter once a year into the presence of God. It was a symbol of God's most intimate and most deep presence. Now, what's happening in Revelation 21 is not here is a city and within it there is the Holy of Holies, but the whole city is the Holy of Holies. The whole city is this square, this cube. It is the most holy place. And here's a wonderful thing. In the Old Testament, there is a look forward to the church of Jesus Christ. There is a looking forward to the expression that we have of that in the New Testament. And the most that people, there were all these symbols and all these images. And one of the images was this inner sanctuary, this cube that was the inner sanctuary. And now John is telling us, and the Holy Spirit is telling us, actually the whole church is the inner sanctuary. All the people of God are the inner sanctuary. The high priest could only enter once a year, but believers have access all the time. And that, again, that is at one and the same time a wonderful thought, and it's also a scary thought. It's a wonderful thought in this, that we don't have a priesthood, we don't have a temple, and we'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. We don't have all these religious rituals, Because together, as the people of God, we can come into the Holy of Holies. You know, in a sense, we will have no more direct access to God in heaven than we have now. That's really what it's saying. The scary side of this, though, is simply this. That holiness is not an optional extra. Holiness is not for special people. Holiness is what we are to have as believers. And that's quite frightening. I think it was A.W. Tozer who talked about worship as being the missing jewel of the church. And what he was talking in there was he was talking about the idea of, of approaching a holy God with reverence and awe. And I think one of the things that we have done, it's almost like there's always swings and roundabouts. There are people who... who um, prescribe holiness as being somberness. You know, he's an awful holy person. What does that mean? He's dressed in black. He never smiles. He's always deadly serious. And they think that the holiness, that's what it should be. And that's what it is. And that was what you should expect in worship. Now, there's no indication in the Bible whatsoever of that being the case. 
But then in reaction to that, you get other people who kind of think, well, we can be flippant with God. We can make jokes about God. You know, of course, Jesus had a sense of humor, and therefore we make jokes about God, and we treat God and the things of God as common. Because the opposite of holiness is, is common. What's for common use? But holiness is what's for special use. What's for God's use? And somehow we, we have got to re-understand what holiness is. Now, uh, there's lots and lots of books I'd love to recommend. One absolutely, it's an old book by a bishop, Bishop J.C. Ryle, just called Holiness. And it's just a fantastic book that helps describe that. But if I was asked, what's one of the greatest needs that we have? One of the greatest needs that we have is a right understanding of what holiness is and a correct practice of holiness and for we ourselves to be more holy. Now, the very fact that, this sounds a bit arrogant, I was going to say, even I think of holiness sometimes in terms of po-faced, that it, it indicates something that's really, really wrong. But as God's people, we are to be holy people. We are to be washed. We are to be cleansed. We are to be renewed. And then, um, let me just say something about the precious stones. The, because to me, they speak of light and color and diversity within God's church, within the city of God. The gold, for example, Solomon's temple was covered completely with gold. The streets that are made of gold reflect the glory of God. Back in Revelation 3 and verse 18, you see uh, what is said to the church in Laodicea, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And what's being said there to the church in Laodicea, that's actually again about holiness. It's saying you think you're rich and have need of nothing, but you're poor. You, are, you, you, you don't realize how pitiful you really, really are. You need this holiness. And that gold is, I think, reflective of that. The other 12 jewels are the 12 jewels inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes on the high priest's breastplate. If you want to check that, go and read Exodus 28, verses 15 to 21. It's, again, just a deliberate reflection of that. Here was the high priest. He had a breastplate. In that breastplate, there were 12 jewels. Those 12 jewels reflected the 12 tribes. Here, as we're being told... Um, there are some differences, but most people accept that the, the, the same list, that this is the same thing that is occurring. Mark Chagall, the Russian Jewish artist, sought to represent this in his work on the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in the providence of God, we happen to be walking past uh, the American Bible Society who have got his works on display, or at least some of his works myself and Annabelle, and we went in, and I was, just, I was just so greatly struck by this. I didn't know this guy at all. It was complete ignoramus as regards his work. But I was just, I, I found his paintings, his representations of the 12 tribes of Israel just stunningly beautiful. And the thing is, all of them are based on a color. So that he has, for example, Judah being red, Levi being yellow, and the particular meanings that come from that. But part of what's being taught there is the diversity and the color of God's people. There's maybe another thing going here. This is a little bit more speculative, but uh, the Jewish 
historian Philo and also Josephus, they pointed out that these 12 stones also represent the 12 signs of the zodiac, but in reverse order. And that is actually true. Now, I know very little about the zodiac. I have no interest in it whatsoever. I've, I never read a horoscope and personally just often regard the whole thing as ridiculous. But one thing about the zodiac is that it's been around for a long, long, long time. Now, some people think that what John is doing here is kind of reverse psychology, that he is wishing to dissociate the holy city from the pagan ideas of the city of God in the heavens. This is where this whole idea of the zodiac comes from. But others suggest, and I think this may be just as likely, that what John is doing is he's saying that the reality that the pagans longed for is only to be found of the revelation of God in Christ. And actually, that's probably a more positive way than to interact sometimes with people. You know, sometimes I've seen people reading their horoscope and saying, you don't believe that rubbish, do you? Well, maybe it might be a little bit more tactful to say, you see these 12 signs of the zodiac? Well, they're spoken of in terms of the church here, and there's a much better way, a much better understanding that what you long for won't be found in a horoscope, but can only be found in the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Anyway, be that as it may, I think the, the precious stones are precious because they show color. The 12 stones separate the colors that are in the jasper in the glory of God and show them purely. I think that's a, a, a great picture of the church of Jesus Christ. It is, we are to be diverse, and we should expect to have lots of color. Uh, it's not right that the church is associated, often associated with one color or with one group of people. There, it, the church should be a vibrant and living place, full of light and color and so on. I mean, in, in this picture here, it's in its symmetry, in its light, in its fertility, it's perfectly proportioned, it's light-filled, it's life-producing, there's balance, there's harmony, there's proportion. Everything fits. I'm not sure how this fits in, but um, I recall, uh, I think it was Alistair I, when we had a weekend away at, in our broth, talking about the actual building and saying, there's an Old Testament building, you need a New Testament building. And talking about the whole question of light and things like that. Well, maybe our architecture should reflect that, but much more important than our architecture, that, that's not insignificant, is what we as the people of God reflect. Full of light, full of life, full of vitality. That's what the city of God is meant to be. Now, it's, it's the city of God coming down from heaven to earth. Obviously, it's the new heavens and the new earth, and what's been described in Revelation 21 is the absolute perfection of the city of God. But that's not just something we just wait for, as I've said. It's something that that's, we should expect to see to some degree now. Let me say just something in closing about what the city does not have, and that's really from verse 22 onwards. Firstly, it doesn't have a temple. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In 2 Corinthians 16 and verse 16, 
We read 13 and verse 16, rather. No, we don't. Beg your pardon. It's, I'm looking, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong thing. John 4 and verse 20 to 23, where it's the story of the uh, Samaritan woman, where uh, she wants to talk about the temple. We Samaritans have our temple. You Jews have your temple in Jerusalem. And, and Jesus says, well, a time is now coming where you worship neither in Jerusalem nor in that mountain. But the temple of God is within. I think it's very, very important that we realize there is no longer any temple. Not in that sense. Not just being spoken of here in heaven, but at the New Testament church. We are the temple. The city is the temple. They're not the people of God, and then within the people of God, there is a temple that the people of God go to. We are the temple. It's why the expression, going to church, though I use it, it's why the expression of the church for the building, though we often use it, it's why that theologically is all wrong. We are the temple. There is no temple in this city. There's no need for sun or moon. That's what it says right at the very end. The, sun does not, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Now, there may well be a sun and a moon, new heavens and new earth and so on. There may well be one, but there's no need for it because their light is vastly outshone as prophesied in Isaiah 60, verses 19 to 20, by the glory of God. The brightness of God far outshines them. Everything is seen. Everything is open. I think this is very, very hard for us to grasp for whom so much is hidden and because we ourselves hide so much. You know, people talk about being an open community. There's a whole lot of stuff we don't want people to know. We do like our privacy. And the reason we like it so often is we want to hide from other people's sin and we want to hide our sin from them. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think in in heaven, there is no hiding. In the church of God on earth, what we need more and more is true openness. So much trouble is caused by hiding. Hiding what we feel, hiding the bitterness, hiding the hurt, hiding the anger, hiding our own sin. Sometimes we need to be a lot more open. Now, being open is really hard because being open means you are going to get hurt. There's no way around it. But if we are closed up, we cannot reflect and be the glory of God as is spoken of here in Revelation 21. And somehow we have to pray that God creates in us a community where people are able to be open without being shot to pieces. Why do we like children? Well, most of us like children. We like children because they're fresh and because they're open and because they trust you and they believe what you say. And why do we struggle with adults and why do we struggle with ourselves? Because we are cynical about people. Because bitter experience has taught us how awful people really, really are. 
and we would rather keep ourselves to ourselves and our thoughts to ourselves, and at least, all right, it might be kind of lonely, but I ain't going to get hurt. But that's not the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to let the light shine amongst us in that way. There's no need for sun or moon. And we need to pray that God would create, make us a more open people. Um, there's the, the, the African spiritual, African-American spiritual, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That's not about going out and handing out tracts to people. It's about being open and transparent and letting the glory of Christ shine through us rather than blocking off that light. See, the other thing in the city doesn't have is it doesn't have shut gates. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, says Jesus. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in and sup with him. Well, here's a different situation where the door is open all the time and there are no shut gates. It's not a case of people having to come and knock on the door and saying, please, can I get in? It's quite funny. Um, we had somebody come to the church about three weeks ago and they came and they knocked on the door and nobody heard them. Uh, I didn't hear them and uh, they thought the door was locked. It wasn't. But uh, it was very interesting because I spoke to them later in the week and they said they'd been and they said that this, you know, they were a bit late and the door had been locked and so on. And I said to them, well, that's really, really wrong. I'm sorry, but the, the door isn't locked, but it shouldn't even give the appearance of being locked. It's open. And again, that's one of the things that the New Testament church has to be. There are no shut gates. We might want to shut gates to keep people out. We might want to shut gates to keep people in. But in, in a community that is focused and centered on Jesus Christ, we, we, we say that all are truly welcome. There are no, because of that, I think, there are no racial, political, and economic divisions. It says that the nations come to worship Him. All will come to worship and center on Christ. And again, there's a foretaste of that just now in heaven. It's one of the great things about the diversity of the church, and it's one of the things that we should long for and that we should encourage. And then there are also no sinners. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, in one sense, the church is full of sinners, but we are forgiven sinners. We are those who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The word that's used here for impure is the word pseudos, from which we get pseudo, false. And all that that's saying simply here is the church must not be, and you cannot be, false, pretending. That's the, it's, it's, maybe apart from the sin of pride, it's probably about the worst sin. The one where you're pretending to be something that you are not. Impure, shameful, deceitful, pseudos, false, pseudo-Christians, a pseudo-church, having all the trappings of religion, having all the words that we think that are there in the Bible, all the right things to do, but we're false. We're not for real. And in a sense, when we come and we sit at the Lord's table, what we're saying is, 
we're for real. We really believe this. We really believe in Jesus. We recognize his body. We, we know that we are sinners. We know that we are not perfect. Far from it. We know that we do not deserve to sit here. But it's precisely because we know that and because we know who Jesus is and we know what Jesus has done, we are here. False piety, false holiness, pseudo-holiness, pseudo-religion. That's the thing that is absolutely nauseating to Jesus Christ. Go back, if you go back again just to Revelation, Revelation 3. Um, I just mentioned it, but let me read it again. Revelation 3 and verse 20. Well, in fact, let me read from verse 15. I know your deeds, says Jesus, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And then verse 20. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Why would anyone be false about being a Christian? Why would you want a false church? Lots of reasons. Because there's lots of things you can get from church. Because there's lots of things you can get from religion. Because there's lots of things that you can get uh, as a community, as a group together. But it is not the church of Jesus Christ if we're going to be false. Think of the two approaches in the story that Jesus told of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Pharisee comes in and says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I give a tenth of this. I'm not like this man at the back, this tax collector. And he boasts in his religion. And the tax collector stands at a distance and cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the latter that went home justified. It was the tax collector who went home right with God. And you see, what the city does not have, what the church of Christ does not have, is falseness, hypocrisy. You say, well, oh, that's not my church. I know there's falseness. I know there's hypocrisy and so on. Well, it's not the church of Jesus Christ because, yes, we will do things that are wrong. But to be false, to be pseudo, to play the game, that's, that's just not the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I think as we enter into uh, a new year, I just have this dream or this idea of people seeing the beauty of Christ in the church, of people meeting God's people in this community here and just saying, you know, this is something beautiful. I, I got a lovely letter from somebody recently just saying, thank you for the beauty. And it was, it was just talking about the whole beauty of worshiping God and the beauty of God's people. The church of Jesus Christ, at least professing, can be at times really horrible, but it can also be breathtakingly beautiful. The psalmist says, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. We are the bride of Christ. We are the city of God come down to earth. Eugene Peterson, in his own colorful way, says this, many people want to go to heaven the way they want to go to Florida, or let's say in our case, the highlands. Many people want to go to heaven the way they want to go to the highlands. Well, no, this doesn't work. They think the weather will be an improvement and the people decent. So let's just go back to Florida. 
Many people want to go to heaven the way they want to go to Florida. They think the weather will be an improvement and the people decent. That's the idea of heaven is somewhere where you go to where things will be better. In other words, that's what he's trying to say. But the biblical heaven is the city coming down to the city. It's not, let's get away. It's God coming in all his beauty into this ugly mess. We enter heaven, says Peterson, not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place in which God has placed us. And in 2009, what I long for is to see Dundee, I know this sounds such a weird concept, becoming a little bit of heaven on earth. Not somewhere we escape from, but somewhere where heaven invades. And that is, I think, uh, a vision, I hope, for all of us. Let's pray.